all along I was a reserve officer working space at the National Security Space Office. So indeed, this was a core part of our uh, our vision for the future. You know, certainly we're we're, we're looking at resilient and, and, and effective arch- architectures with proliferated systems. But in-space servicing, assembly, and manufacturing is so critical. Uh, it's in all the above uh, aspect. From the Defense and Aerospace Report, this is The Downlink, a podcast about the intersection of space, the space business, and defense. Not just what's over the horizon, but what's happening above it. I'm your host, Laura Winter. Hello and welcome back. I hope you're all enjoying the Veterans Day holiday. And if you are a veteran, thank you sincerely for your service. Now on to this week's episode, which is coming to you from the University of Maryland in College Park. It's here inside the University Student Union's Colony Ballroom that NASA gathered an interested and invested crowd of U.S. space leaders who work on in-space servicing, manufacturing, and assembly, or ISAM. The acronym is actually a catch-all descriptor that captures a broad set of in-space industrial activities and technologies that could be on the verge of mass adoption. What's absolutely key here is that robots of every size imaginable do the work, such as extending the lifespan of spacecraft. So we're talking refueling and repairing objects in space or on the surface of celestial bodies. But it also includes using robots to manufacture components in space and using those components to build structures from beams to space stations. This is not science fiction. This is science now. So NASA has just established the Cosmic Consortium. It's an interest group of the various ISAM stakeholders, and the intent of this week's Cosmic Kickoff event is twofold. First, to coordinate face-to-face a national effort to develop and deploy ISAM technology. And second, to make the use of ISAM technologies as routine as employing a programmed coffee maker for your first cup of joe. At the Cosmic Kickoff event, I caught up with United States Space Force Major General John Olson, who has so many hats as a mobilization assistant to the Chief of Space Operations that I'm leaving it up to him to explain what exactly he does. And we are briefly joined by Cosmic's Executive Director Greg Richardson, who is no stranger to ISAM, or National Defense Space Missions. Here's our conversation. Hello, General Olson, Greg. Thank you both so much for inviting me to Cosmic and the kickoff, and welcome to the Downlink Podcast. It's great to be here with you, Laura. Uh, I think this is going to be a great opportunity for us to expand and uh, dive into some of the real applications of what we're talking here at Cosmic. And I'm just thrilled that you're here. We're here at the Cosmic kickoff today. We're here with kicking off a nationwide collaboration opportunity on in-space servicing assembly manufacturing, our ISAM. And so I'm just really glad we're here, able to talk to you, able to talk to your audience, and let them know what we're all about. Awesome. Now, before we start on ISAM, OSAM, SAML, and get into why you have joined NASA in establishing COSMIC, I want my guests to have a chance to know who they're listening to. And this is, you know, for the both of you, because this is the first time you both have been on the podcast. So we really need to do some introductions. Now, 
Greg, I want to start with you. When I was preparing for this interview, I found that since graduating from both MIT and Stanford, you have dedicated more than two decades of your life to developing space systems and space architectures, and much of that time was spent on national defense projects and missions. So, Greg, take a moment to introduce yourself, you know, like, where are you from and what you do and where you're doing it? Perfect. So I'm Greg Richardson. I'm a senior project leader at the Aerospace Corporation. I've been at aerospace for most of the last 23 years. And so in that time, I've had three different careers at aerospace. I've had a 10-year career where I was out at our headquarters in El Segundo, and I was doing all kinds of support to JPL and NASA headquarters and Space Systems Command, then Space and Missile Systems Center, um, and doing all kinds of fun stuff. But then after 10 years, I moved, and I've been out in Chantilly providing direct support to the National Reconnaissance Organization, working on all kinds of survivability and resilience projects. But for the last three years, I've been in Aerospace's Civil Systems Group. And in that group, I've been leading ISAM support, so in-space servicing assembly and manufacturing support for projects at NASA headquarters, at Space Systems Command, and a bunch of internal research and development. So I'm excited to be able to uh, provide that, those kinds of services. I'm excited to be able to be a part of the ISAM community and to help bring that community together. And General Olson, you are an engineer like some five times over, I think. At least that's according to a biography I read about you. And you've been involved in space systems starting from your days at the Air Force Academy. Am I correct about that? You bet. Uh, I would say I'm definitely a space cadet, if you will. Um, you know, I did start my journey uh, at the Air Force Academy. Uh, but, you know, I've had a, an incredible journey across 35 years of uh, a professional lifetime here. I, I uh, started out in the Air Force, and then I had the opportunity to go to NASA for just about a decade. My last two years, uh, I was also the director for space and aeronautics at the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy. And then uh, kind of building on that career trajectory, I, I spent three and a half years at Sierra Nevada Corporations, the largest women-owned, privately held aerospace and defense contractor. I left there in order to spend time with my family at home in Minnesota, but I, I became the vice president and general manager of Polaris, uh, ran commercial government defense, so a Fortune 500 company, and then I was the CEO of a $23 billion company before I came back in to be full-time standing up the Space Force. You know, we're the first service, uh, new service in about 75 years, and the first service born in the digital era, so it's been an incredible trajectory, and I am tickled to be talking in space servicing assembly and manufacturing with you, but, you know, when we look at this, that time, you know, a decade in industry, a decade at NASA, and uh, then the time in several different uh, elements of this uh, of the, the military. The common thread throughout that has always been that our economy and our security are built on technology, and no, at no point in history, I think, is that more uh, valid and true than now as we start looking at both space and, and cyber and data and AI, the, the confluence of those, since you know we like to say there are no space heroes without cyber ones and zeros, is absolutely palpable. We are at a historic moment in time, and I am just tickled in honor to be a part of all those communities. And I just want to be sure that I also have this right. You also graduated from test pilot school, and I know that's a big thing, so that's why I'm mentioning it. 
I, you know, I am indeed a graduate of uh, the United States Air Force Test Pilot School. Uh, I've had the opportunity to fly in 83 different aircraft. Uh, most recently, I've been more of a passenger, though. I've been uh, the Airborne Emergency Action Officer on the Looking Glass Airborne Nuclear Command Post. Uh, definitely by far the most serious job I've ever had, uh, where I'm responsible for the survivable uh, command and control, uh, the person who speaks with the president and, and the national command authorities and, and controls our, our, our nation's nuclear triad on a, on, a, on a bad day. But that gives us a level of integrated deterrence and a level of capability. And, you know, as we reflect back on that, in the past 80 years since the advent of, of nuclear weapons, it's been the most unprecedented period of non-global wars in all of recorded human history. So, you know, I've taken that responsibility, which is an additional duty, a very serious additional one, particularly since, you know, Ukraine uh, kicked off on 24th of February of 22. Today represents day 622 uh, that that conflict has been ongoing. And, of course, with the Israel situation, the world is indeed as challenging and as dynamic as perhaps I've ever seen it in my uh, 35 years of, of, of serving in the military in either a full-time or a part-time capacity. So that is a, you know, that is a serious uh, challenge before us. When we look at space, space is absolutely critical to our daily life in, in the civilian or the economic capacity. I mean, whether it, it, it be our GPS or our weather or our banking system, time sinks, but when we look at about the criticality of that to, to our national security, our integrated deterrence and our defense, it is paramount. And I think as you look at that, our Space Force, uh, our United States Space Force, coming up on our fourth birthday, the 20th of, of, of December, we are laser focused on the mission to secure our nation's interests in, from, and to space. And quite simply put, you know, our $30.1 billion budget, which is really doubled uh, in the past two years, is just a reflection on the importance and criticality to our nation and to all of our partners and allies around the globe that space is absolutely essential to everything that we do. And one last thing before we move on to talking about Cosmic today. I'd like you to explain actually what you do, right? Because a lot of people realize at least if they're listening to this podcast, that yes, the Space Force is the military force for really what's the largest geographical domain, right? It's the branch that is actually producing the capabilities and the people to, you know, achieve security there for our national interests and the interests of our allies and partners. But what people don't really understand is, you know, what do you do and, and, and what is what are your responsibilities? I, because it is complicated and it's really complicated if you don't have just like let's say you know a very brief like one minute primer yeah on what it is that you do i am the chief of space operation uh, the cso uh, as we like to say that's general b chance salsman um the first one was uh general uh, raymond uh, so we now have our second uh, for about a year uh, with General Saltz from the CSO. I'm the MA or the mobilization assistant to the CSO. Um, normally that means I'm a reserve officer uh, who supports the chief, who's, who's a service chief, who's a joint chief, and also the head of the 18th Intelligence Agency, which is the Space Force for the United States. So when we look at those multi-hats that, that, that uh, the, the CSO wears, 
I, I am the senior reservist responsible for all of our part-time uh, space uh, space reserve personnel, our airmen, and, and, and uh, we don't have guardians yet, but with the Space Force Personnel Management Act legislation currently before Congress, we may very well have a brand new, really exciting paradigm uh, for the Space Force, wherein we have full and part-time guardians, which is going to be a big enabler for us from a personnel, uh, because as we know, it's all about people. And so taking care of those world-class people in a way that's much more dynamic, a way that's much more representative of 21st century business practices, this is truly critical for us. So uh, in that vein, um, what do I do? I have uh, that primary job uh, of of doing the helping to assist org train and equip, but I also am the lead for for the uh, as the space operations lead. For a co- uh, combined joint all-domain command and control, or CJADC2, that is the ability to sense, make sense, and act across all the domains uh, in a contested environment uh, at the speed of relevance. That's the very definition of it, and it is it is it is really for the Department of the Air Force. It's our primary contribution to JADC2. Uh, it is also uh, done uh, under. Uh, the operations requirements are set under the Advanced Battle Management System Cross-Functional Team, or ABMS-CFT. I'm the space ops leader of that. I also, we also have a, a an acquisition side. That's what we call C3BM, Command, Control, Communications, Battle Management. That is Brigadier General Luke Cropsey. Uh, the, the Secretary of the Air Force regularly says he has the hardest job he's ever given anyone, which is bringing together roughly 55 programs, $21.5 billion portfolio, designed to implement not just the architecture and systems engineering of that, but all the acquisition, stitching that together along with project overmatch and project convergence for the Navy and Army, respectively. So that's how we are tackling in the 21st century command and control and battle management at a, at a grand scale. So I lead that. I also co-lead, uh, or I, I should say I lead that for space operations. I also am the space operations uh, co-lead for our operational imperative two. We have seven, uh, which are part of our effort in the Department of the Air Force to modernize and, and re-architect and create much more resilient and effective uh, space order or battle uh, and, and, and systems and capabilities. If that wasn't enough, I have a couple other jobs that I do. I already mentioned the part-time uh, Airborne Nuclear Command Post role. Uh, I've, I've I, you know, for, for a long time there, I had to fly one week out of four. So uh, it was truly uh, quite demanding uh, at, the, at the start of the uh, Ukraine conflict. I also am, have, have been the warfighting representative and the, uh, and the tech representative on the Office of the Secretary of Defense, OSDs, our Operational Energy Innovation technical and tactical uh, advisory group. So this is this is really important. As you know, um, you, you, you perhaps may not know that the Air Force is the largest user of energy in the DOD, which is the largest user of energy in the federal government, which is the largest user of energy in the United States, which is the largest user of energy in the world. So that means this is a really critical responsibility uh, for us, and so I take that uh, quite seriously. And the final thing we've been doing is is what we're here talking about today. Uh, I have, along with my teammates and colleagues, kind of forged the uh, the, the nexus of our effort in the Space Force to support the U.S. national policy on in-space servicing, assembly, and manufacturing that 
also that implementation plan, as well as the U.S. national policy on orbital debris remediation. So um, it has been a busy, uh, busy, busy uh, period with all those jobs. And last year, I was also our first ever chief data and AI officer for the Air and Space Force. So for the DAF, um, I, I uh, led do, that for 54 weeks last year. Do you get enough coffee? Because like I'm already like exhausted. That's insane. It, it, well, my wife says uh, the exact same thing. That I, I I would agree with you. It was like 16 hour days, seven days a week last year, um, with uh, with the confluence of all those items. But you know, ironically, I think I'm the only uh, fighter guy and the only uh, uh, the only warrior who. Uh, doesn't drink coffee. I am naturally fired up and wired up. And, uh, you know, Greg is uh, is a brother here. I can tell he's naturally energetic. But the truth is, is I don't even drink caffeine. When I do, I am uh, I am uh, high speed, low drag for at least uh, 12 hours. So uh, I am a I'm a water guy. All right. Well, I can see that Greg's energy is now building up to a pretty serious boil. So we passed the baton. Yeah, passed the baton over. So how and when did you guys first get hooked on ISAM? I mean, of course, there are economic and national security reasons that the both of you are working on this, which we'll get into in a moment. But what is that special thing about in-space infrastructure, you know, manufacturing facilities on orbit or cislunar services like refueling. You know, we, before we even started recording, we, we kind of recognized each other as nerds, even though you're like really, you know, a professionally degreed nerd. I mean, what is it that sets your heart aflame and, and has you so passionate about this? Got it. Well, I started supporting ISAM operations back in 2002. And so as part of the Aerospace Corporation, we provided support to DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency. They had a mission called Orbital Express. And Orbital Express was designed to demonstrate all the things that we're talking about when it comes to ISAM. It was autonomous rendezvous and docking. It was refueling. It was pulling fuel from an orbital depot. It was uh, installing hardware on a satellite after it has been launched. And so I got to work on that mission for five years, all the way from their uh, system requirements review, all the way up through on-orbit operations. And that mission was really complicated. It was the first time that any of this stuff had been done robotically. And I got to see there and work through the assembly integration and test challenges and the design choices that we made and how those impacted on-orbit operations and work through some of the anomalies that we had on orbit. But one of the key themes with that is DARPA said, we want to take the technical excuse off the table. We've done servicing before with astronauts. We've sent astronauts up to repair Hubble. We've sent them up to uh, rescue uh, spacecraft that have been stranded. We've sent them up to assemble ISS. Can we do that robotically? Can we do that with without humans on board and still demonstrate that functionality? And so I got to see that mission all the way through. And I became passionate about what I call post-launch flexibility, sending a spacecraft up and then being able to modify its mission, its function, or even its physical implementation uh, after launch. And so I am really passionate about the flexibility that that brings, the ability to respond to challenges in real time, whether those challenges come from an adversary action or a spacecraft failure on board or micrometeoroids, micrometeoroids or a changing environment or a changing mission. And we need to have the capabilities to be able to modify those spacecraft, to modify what we already spent a long time and a lot of engineering hours putting up. Let's make it work for us. Let's make it work not just when we launch it, not just when we start a program, but uh, over the entire life cycle of that program. We want it, when it is operating, to still be able to be modified, upgraded, uh, refueled if needed, 
extended its life if needed, uh, be able to give you that post-launch flexibility as that satellite can continue to be great, continue to be operational, continue to provide useful services even years or decades after it launches, even after the, its primary mission may have changed. All of that's possible through in-space servicing. And did you have an epiphany moment for when ISAM became something that you became passionate about? You know, ironically, I have very much a similar past. You know, my last active duty assignment in the Air Force prior to going to NASA was uh, in Albuquerque at the at the Detachment 12, the Dirty Dozen there. We had, uh, in, in, indeed, uh, the XSS-10 and 11 and, and, and DARPA's Orbital Express. So these were fantastic opportunities that I had an opportunity to engage in uh, operationally and from a test uh, and evaluation perspective early on. Uh, when I went to NASA, it became ever more present. John, uh, John Grunsfeld, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm very honored to call him a friend. Uh, you know, but the work that he did with the human uh, aspect of the on-orbit servicing and repair was uh, was phenomenal and amazing uh, at NASA. But when we, uh, I was I was the manager of International Space Station operations there, and when you look at the capabilities uh, in in the build out and the maintenance. Uh, and the upgrade of the International Space Station just further reinforced this. All along, I was a reserve officer working space at the National Security Space Office. So indeed, this was a core part of our uh, our vision for the future. You know, certainly we're we're, we're looking at resilient and, and, and effective art architectures with proliferated systems. But in-space servicing, assembly, and manufacturing is so critical. Uh, it's in all the above uh, aspect. But what, what underpins that most, and, and, and as we look at today's complex, challenging, and competitive environment in space, is the fact that we must have sustained maneuver. We must have dynamic space operations that are are, are, are the elements that allow us to deal with the increasing spectrum of, of, of threats, whether they be reversible to uh, irreversible, uh, whether they be from uh, simple ground-based or space-based elements to much more complex challenges. Having the ability to move is, throughout all of history, uh, a critical to survival and security. So, Greg, then why cosmic? I mean, there are a lot of Groups that are working on on different aspects of ISAM or or ISAM in certain locations, like you've got the Lunar Surface and Innovation Consortium. You know, and they're looking very much in the cislunar area, lunar operations. But again, why cosmic? What's the demand signal for establishing cosmic? And um, you might even want to start with what does cosmic actually stand for? Sure, absolutely. Cosmic is the consortium for space mobility and ISAM capabilities. We've talked to ISAM, the In Space Servicing Assembly Manufacturing. And COSMIC is standing up as a nationwide consortium to bring together government, industry, academia, nonprofit research institutions, and other consortia to collaborate, to coordinate, to share information about what they're doing, to share information about what they're planning, and to help the U.S. ISAM industry demonstrate all the capabilities that it needs to to provide the space mobility, the dynamic space operations that are needed for DOD side, to provide the refueling that's needed and the life extension that's needed on the commercial side, and to provide civil missions the ability to do whatever they need to, whether that's in-orbit assembly of large telescopes, manufacturing of components for space use or for use on the ground. COSMIC is there to help ensure that there's good coordination and collaboration there. The key, though, is that ISAM is bigger than any one agency. You know, over the past few years, different agencies have looked at this. And I talked about it from a DARPA perspective. NASA has been demonstrating uh, different technologies, both on ISS and as, as independent free flyers. Uh, Space Force has been demonstrating uh, the different activities like uh, uh, XSS-10 and XSS-11 and Orbital Express. Uh, I'm sorry, DOD has been demonstrating those. Um, 
But ISAM is bigger than any one agency. And if we are ever going to get to a point where ISAM becomes routine, we can't have agencies doing it alone. We can't have companies doing it alone, that we need a whole-of-nation effort. And that's where COSMIC comes in. Uh, the White House recognized the need for that whole-of-nation effort. They put out the National ISAM strategy, the National ISAM implementation plan, and in that plan they called for a nationwide consortium. COSMIC responds to that. COSMIC is here to help both address that particular need in the plan as well as the 28 other actions that are assigned to DOD, that are assigned to NASA, State Department, Commerce, Education Department, all of whom have a role in implementing part of the implementation plan. COSMIC can help with all of that. We can create that whole-of-nation approach and have the coordination and collaboration that allows each of our agencies, each of our companies, each of our universities to be more effective because they know what else is happening in the community. They have an opportunity to share with other folks in their sector, with other sectors, government, industry, and academia. And through all, through all of that, through the power of collaboration, we can help ensure U.S. leadership in ISAM, and we can make ISAM a routine part of space mission operations. Now, I just want to build off of um, something that you just said and, and something that you also recently wrote in an op-ed piece. The thing that really caught me, though, at the top of it, you actually said the U- U.S. space is at a technological tipping point in this area. What is that tipping point? How can you illustrate that in, in, in the imagination of um, my listeners? Perfect. Yeah, one of the things that is the unofficial mascot of ISAM for years and years has been the chicken and the egg, right? That it doesn't necessarily make sense to design a spacecraft to be refuelable or serviceable unless there is also a servicer that's out there that can refuel it, repair it, upgrade it. And it doesn't make sense to go and put up a, a uh, servicing spacecraft unless you have clients to refuel. So there's that constant challenge of who goes first and how do we, how do, we do this? Well, we're breaking that. And we're breaking it through private investment. And so this is not government pushing out. This is independent uh, companies pushing at this. So the, the best known of them is a company called Space Logistics. It's a Northrop Grumman company. Um, and they demonstrated something called the Mission Extension Vehicle. And so this was a two separate spacecraft, MEV-1 and MEV-2, that launched in 2019 and 2020, each of which docked with an operational communication satellite, either in or near the geostationary belt. Um, They docked to provide life extension services for that spacecraft. So when that MEV docked with the client, then uh, the position and attitude control for that spacecraft was taken over by that mission extension vehicle. And so now... The spacecraft, even if it's running low on fuel, it can still maintain its position. It can still maneuver if needed. It can still maintain attitude. Um, it can do all the things that it needs to do for longer because it has this external propulsion pod that has been installed. Um, that proved this is possible. It proved that there is a business case for it. It proved that there is utility from a client-customer perspective. Now the question is, what else can we do? What can we do next? Right? We Not just life extension. Can we do upgrade capability? Can we offer the refueling needed to enable dynamic space operations and maneuver without regret? Can we uh, create the in-space logistics elements that are needed to be able to support all of the different customers and clients that want to utilize servicing, assembly, manufacturing technologies? That's the challenge we have, and that's why it's more than one agency and one company. We want that logistics infrastructure to be able to support any users who are there because we're at a point now where this is possible where we've demonstrated ISAM is happening today with today's technologies on today's spacecraft. And so it's not something that's years or decades into the future. We want to expand those capabilities. We want to, over time, grow what is possible. We want to grow what operational capabilities are being performed uh, in space. 
And that's why Cosmic is here. We want to bring together the users and providers and researchers, regulators, to talk about where the challenges are, to talk about what we can do, to talk about who's doing what and better inform each of those groups as to what technologies are out there, where that mission demand is going to come from, where the challenges are, and then we can work together on solving it. And General Olson, from a national security perspective, and because there are a lot of other things going on and that could be considered ISM that, that our adversaries are also you know, launching and putting up there and demonstrating, do you agree that we are at a tipping point, but from a national security perspective? I think absolutely that's correct. You know, everything that we do is threat-informed, and uh, I think when we look at the global uh, space arena, our objective is to create a safe, stable, secure, and sustainable space domain where we have freedom of action uh, to give our national command authorities uh, and our and, and our joint coalition uh, services and partners uh, the ability to, again, secure our nation's interests in, from, and to uh, space. This is an important confluence. We see the rapid globalization and proliferation of technology. Uh, we see uh, the rise of, of you know, in the internet and the proliferation of, of commercial space capabilities uh, is on an explosive level. We've seen that uh, most most uh, vividly in, in the Ukraine. If you just say a couple of company names like uh, Starlink, Maxar, Capella, ISI, and Umbra, uh, whether it be for uh, you know communications and and, and data or electro optical imagery or synthetic aperture radar imagery, it, it was profoundly uh, disruptive. It's the new future that's going to carry on forevermore. So absolutely, uh, this is a this is an important tipping point. You know when we look at our doctrine in the Space Force, you know certainly we have the the U.S. national policy on on ISAM and, and the U.S. national uh, policy on orbital debris, um, but you know when we look at it, we call it space access, mobility, and logistics, and those are fundamental. It's often said that, you know, rookies deal in tactics and masters uh, deal in logistics. That's absolutely true. Logistics are critical for all of our uh, security and integrated deterrence activities, uh, and, and particularly so in space. So I know that Greg has got to get up and leave us to go and take care of Cosmic's guests. But I just wanted to say thank you very much for coming on the downlink. Well, thank you for having me. So one message I want to get out to your your listeners is Cosmic is here as a U.S. consortium for ISAM. So if there's anyone who's working in this area, if you've got a research project, if you've got an idea, if you're a small company, if you're a potential user of ISAM services, Go to CosmicSpace.org, connect with the community, we'll get you a membership application, we'll get you to come in, and we'd love to have you participating and helping to define the future of U.S. ISAM capabilities. Thank you. So I want to pick up with you, General Olson, on what specifically will Space Force bring to Cosmic? You've got SpaceWorks and Orbital Prime contracts, but... Being part of Cosmic just gives me the feels that all of this coordination should be leading to something bigger. Maybe it's uh, people, maybe it's greater effort, but it does create, I mean, it does require effort if you're going to be part of a consortium that is actually going to get real stuff done and not just talk about it. Well, sure. I appreciate the question. I mean, 
fundamentally, we are in the business of outcomes, right? Uh, there is no E for effort. Uh, there's no uh, participation trophy. It is outcomes. And these are absolutely serious uh, times that we find ourselves in. And as, as, as you look at the challenges before us that I, uh, that I talked about, challenges to our traditional leadership in space, uh, the proliferation of, of threats and capabilities, these are things that are driving a uh, an unprecedented level of relook. We call it reorienting towards great power competition. Um, and and so that is the number one Department of the Air Force priority right now. We just got out of Corona, uh, which is our, 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 our largest strategic meeting of all the, 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 the senior most generals uh, in the Air and Space Force, and that was the focal topic for it. Uh, similarly, we have the operational imperatives. I mentioned that earlier. The seven operational imperatives are the things that we must do to transform and evolve from a 20- or 25-year focus on violent extremist organizations and the global war on terror to a much more challenging, high-end, peer, near-peer uh, great power competition uh, environment. So that is the the background that, that, that underpins everything that we are doing. Um, operational imperative one, the first uh, is, is, is a resilient space order of battle. What that means in plain speak is that is a resilient and effective uh, architecture that, that implies uh, proliferation of, of our capabilities and implies in-space servicing assembly, or SAML, as I mentioned earlier, which is the military doctrine-based uh, space access, mobility, and, and logistics. That is what underpins that. Similarly, we have Operational Imperative 2, which I, I co-lead for, for space. That's operationally optimized CJAD, C2, and ABMS, and C3BM. All of those things are ability to, again, sense, make sense, and act at the speed of need and relevance. The third is moving target indicators. Well, as we've looked, or, you know, as we've looked at that, the, 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 the Joint Stars aircraft, which is our ground-moving target, and the AWACS, the, the Airborne Warning and Control uh, System, these are, these are now uh, systems that are high-value airborne assets that are no longer relevant uh, due to their aging and, and, and due to the, the fact that they're, uh, in the words of General Height and big, fat, juicy targets, along with uh, satellites. These, uh, in an era of great co power competition, you need to have an all-of-the-above uh, solution. And so Greg was absolutely spot on. This is a whole of nation, not just a whole of government, because the greatest asset we have is the nexus of our, 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 our brilliant people, the richness, the diversity, the entrepreneurial spirit, the innovative spirit. But we need unity of command and unity of effort to bring that in a focus, uh, to bring efficiency and effectiveness to bear. We also need to harness and stimulate and sustain a competitive and robust U.S. and allied and partner industrial base. Academia and our institutional and our interagency elements are so vitally important. And then finally, internationally. I just was in Norway uh, a week and a half ago. We opened the Andoya spaceport, which is going to be the first orbital spaceport uh, in Europe. It's a phenomenal capability that uh, represents a disaggregation, a dissimilar redundancy, a geographic uh, differential. All these things um, are, are, are important when you think from a global strategic context, a global operational context, and then you translate that down into our tactical priorities. And so really it's all about people and priorities in this new era, and ISAM is an integral part of that. It is one of many but it is a big enabler because, as we mentioned, logistics, as we mentioned, sustained maneuver, as we mentioned, 
the need for integrated deterrence and protection uh, to provide options. All these are underpinned by those capabilities. But I'm going to circle back to the original thought. What is Space Force going to add to the cosmic cause, to the cosmic consortium that's being built here? So that this does become a bit of a joint effort. I mean, you are kind of an expert in joint efforts, right? So, you know, when I think about joint efforts, you are thinking about allocation. Who's going to carry that, you know, carry yes. that portfolio? Have you assigned somebody to carry that portfolio? Yes, we're right? we're doing it at all echelons. So we've we structuralized this into our existing uh, organizational roles and responsibilities. You know, of course, we've got the the the, the policy, and that starts right that that, that right. underpins that. But then we put that into uh, our prioritization. You heard from uh, our our SAP SQ, our space acquisition, working for the service acquisition executive for space. We also have the program executive officers that work with beneath that. Our acquisition arms are the space development agency. And, and they are the embodiment of a new philosophy where we go, you know, much simpler, much more, uh, much shorter uh, development and, and, and uh, test and deployment timelines. So, you know, our, 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 uh, our objective is two years and, and, and our threshold is about three years. So that's radically different than the decade plus that it used to take. You're seeing that for missile warning, missile track. You're seeing that for um, uh, space uh data transport, SDT, and you're also seeing that for MTI. So these are uh, these are the focus, those moving target indicators. Uh, those, are, th- those are the focus for SDA. We also have the Space Systems Command, which is our acquisition arm. And, and under Lieutenant General Gutline, who leads that, we are, we are driving uh, a transformation in the way that we're doing that. Part of the Space Systems Command is, is our commercial space office. So that's leveraging a hybrid space architecture, leveraging both an office in Los Angeles on the West Coast and one in here in Chantilly in the, in the East Coast. Which is also called? Well, cosmic, cosmic, exactly. Right? <laughs> so that that is the embodiment of uh, that in, is is an embodiment of that. But it's also uh, at our space rapid capabilities office. It's also at the space operations command. It's also at the forty five uh, space launch delta under uh, Brigadier General Kristen Ponsenhagen. The one thing that's super neat, and and, and our predecessor started that um, uh, with the Major General Bird Dog Purdy. Uh, they're they're multi-hatted in that they're both responsible for acquisition and operations. And that gives us a tremendous agility and allows us to link requirements with actually what we deliver in terms of kit or capabilities as part of that org train and equip uh, responsibility. So, but that's just the start. Part of its architecture, part of its uh, the, 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 the basic and applied, uh, you know, research, development, test and evaluation, the RDT&E, the systems development, it's a systems of systems architecture. We've adopted a model-based systems engineering approach. So our Space Warfighting Analysis uh, Center, the SWAC, takes a threat-based intelligence-informed uh, perspective, and it builds all these models and, and it allows us to, to iterate and, and, and evaluate on a, on a level with our industry partners, now now we bring in those those digital elements and we uh, and we exercise them and evaluate them in this digital engineering ecosystem, and what that allows us to do is go faster and farther. So that is what how we are bringing this to to bear. You know, at the end of the day, it's people, and it's 
and it's money. Um, and, and so we're aligning our money to our priorities, uh, uh, again, consistent with great power comp uh, competition, uh, with the operational imperatives. But then we know, we know that the huge capability set that is in industry, since we're so very small in the Space Force, uh, we're teaming with um, NASA uh, as the other really large pole, you know, Space Force and NASA, the National Reconnaissance Office. Uh, but this is so much more broader. We had 14 departments and agencies that contributed to the interagency uh, efforts ICM. and activities on ISAM. Yeah, it's actually 18. Um, 18 uh, departments and agencies. This is the, you know, Office of, uh, you know, Department of Commerce, Office of Space Commercialization, the FAA, uh, NOAA, uh, when we look across the services, and, and, and there's so many more, uh, when we tie the interagency, the industry, and the international elements together, that's how we we bring all those elements and roles and responsibilities of the Space Force into that interagency whole-of-nation approach. So for my last question, you know, I want to give you kind of a sweet, yummy softball, something expansive. Okay. And with five engineering degrees and a massive background in space and aerospace, put your nerdiest self on. Where do you see ISAM, let's say, 10 years? How will the Space Force utilize ISAM? Well, you know, I love the in question. 10 years. You know, 10 years is a long time. If you just look back 10 years ago, it's stunning how far we've come. I think actually and, the and future is coming faster than it, That's exactly thinks. right. And when you look at uh, the capabilities with uh, data and generative AI, and when we look at the evolution in so many foundational areas, the confluence of those is freaky fast, if you will. Um, so in, 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 in 10 years, my vision, uh, and, and, and I do not think it's, it's, it's too far out there at all, I see ISAM as being a ubiquitous part of everything that we do in space. It's going to be like a nothing burger by itself because it's going to be an intrinsic part of everything that we, we do. Again, when we look at it from a national security side, as you asked, um, space access, mobility, and logistics, when we talk sustained maneuver, throughout all of history, maneuver has been the difference between um, success or failure, life or death. It is no different. We are just now going to massively adopt that. Is it the only thing? No. Proliferated space architectures, resilient, robust uh, space architectures, ones that leverage dissimilar redundancy and, and, and all of those things we've discussed are absolutely part of it. But it's an all-the-above solution. When we, when, when we talk about what will we see, well, we've got Artemis. You know, NASA is leading the way with civil space exploration. Commercial is right there, and and the awesome opportunities that are going to unfold. Um, you know, and Space Force is going to be there with them because absolutely. you don't go exploring without having you know having the security coming with you. A Amen. Our entire human history is always shown that where commerce and exploration have gone, so too if you got, had the need to protect, had the need to safeguard, because those two go hand in hand. And so we see a bright, bold future. I also see that this is going to be all orbits, um, but it's also going to be ex-geo and cis-lunar, and that is here now. If we look in a, in, in, in a, in a, in a great power context, 
right now we've got Chang'e 5 on the far side of the moon. We've got uh, an orbiter in a near rectilinear halo orbit. But, you know, we also have an incredible array of capabilities and ideas and strategies, and we're working together in a unified sense to bring those to bear and, and, and to bring those to fruition because the United States, since the dawn of the space age, has been a leader and this is an integral part of our economy and security, and the same is going to be ever more present in the future. And that's why the Space Force and NASA are going to be there together, along with the rest of the whole of the nation and our partners and allies. Uh, and I'm really excited about that 10-year future. I think, um, you know, when we look at five, it's going to be unbelievably disruptive. Are we um, going to be living, you think, out there? I, you know, I think uh, living is a, uh, a, a relative descriptor. We've already had a sustained human presence on the International Space Station for uh, nearly 25 years. So uh, the answer is, will we have people living and working and doing productive commerce and tourism in space? We already have that. And I say we're going to see it accelerate. Uh, and it's going to be a fun, extraordinary time. It's a great moment in history to be alive. If you're a space geek, a tech nut, um, this is a hot area. And, and like we say, you know, it goes hand in hand. Space and cyber and data and AI, they're all mutually synergistic and they're growing together. And so it is going to be a fun next decade. General Olson, thank you so much for your time. This was fascinating. It's a pleasure and an honor. I look forward to the next time. Thank you very much, Laura. That's it for this week. If you like what you're hearing, follow the downlink on Twitter and subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. For the latest defense news and analysis, listen to the Daily Defense and Aerospace Report podcast hosted by Vaga Maradian and listen to Cavish Ships to hear the latest on what's happening in the maritime domain. I'm Laura Winter, and thank you for listening.